If you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We'll be reading and looking at this morning verses 22 through 33. Matthew, Mark, and Luke lump together these uh, three scenarios or experiences with the Lord Jesus. Uh, the death of John the Baptist is mentioned, as well as Jesus feeding the 5,000, which we looked at last week, and now Jesus walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee. In the last two are the miracles that Jesus performs in a way to remind us of his power, of his deity, so that we can worship him as the Son of God. And in this very familiar passage, um, we are reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who alone uh, brings peace to our lives. He is the one who, as we've already seen, calms the storm. And what I love about this passage is he is the one who comes to us in the midst of the storm and is there as our refuge, is there as our uh, one that we take hold of. If I could preach this to the state of Florida today, if I could preach this to the state of Texas and people all over the world or all over our nation that are facing tragedy, um, I would, because I would want them to see Christ and to find refuge and strength in him. Not because he would necessarily rebuild their homes, not because he would necessarily um, keep their homes from being destroyed, but that he would be the one who has provided a greater salvation than any hurricane or tragedy brings. He is the salvation for our souls. And I know in a, it's easy for us today to, to look upon um, those people in Miami and, and the Key West, Florida, those that were in Puerto Rico, and to be so detached from what they are suffering. And so our prayer this morning is simply that they would look to Christ that pastors and churches would proclaim Christ and that he would be the one that would comfort their hearts, that would comfort their minds, that they would look beyond what their physical sufferings and they would find hope in him for their spiritual suffering. As we look at this passage, it's very providential and can greatly remind us of those very truths in our lives today, even in a, on a sunny Sunday afternoon here in Memphis, that we all go through trials, that we all go through storms, and that Christ teaches us and guides us through those. And I'm reminded day by day as we meet as a church that Monday through Friday, or even Monday through Saturday, we are going in the midst of these storms, and we come back here to gather together with the saints, to hear from God's word, to be refreshed, to be reminded that we must press on, that we must persevere, um, drawing us back to maybe ways that we've lingered from him through the week, and to just fellowship and worship and enjoy our intimacy with him through Jesus Christ. And so I pray and hope that today we can worship together through the preaching of, your wor of, of his word and look at these truths together in Matthew chapter 14. Let me read this as we look at Jesus, who is our peace. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, <clears throat> he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. All that we see in the Scriptures, all that we read and meditate on day by day, should lead us to that very last sentence, that we would look to Jesus, that we would fall down and worship him and proclaim, truly you are the son of God. That's why we're here. That's why we proclaim Christ, to see him, to understand him as he has revealed himself. Not that Not to create new ideas about Jesus, but simply to see the way that he has revealed himself and to worship him as the Son of God, the only Son of God. And as Jesus reveals to us again in this passage, he wants us to see his power on display. He wants to instruct us about about the way that we should live as believers in our walk with Christ. And the first way he does that is the way that he demonstrates or exemplifies his intimacy with the Father. In verse 22, it says that he sends his disciples away into a boat. And so they are setting off, going by themselves into this boat, and they are traveling on the Sea of Galilee. And they're, they're, they're a, a, now a distance from Jesus, and he goes up on the mountain to pray by himself. And our minds should immediately uh, have an, explana- uh, an exclamation uh, of uh, there in our passage where we, we're reminded of the, the idea of, of going on a mountain to pray. My mind stopped there as I was studying, thinking about... Um, the way that God uses mountains in the Bible. You know, if you can remember with me throughout the whole scope of Scripture, that mountains were where people went to worship God. Even in a pagan culture, that's where people set up their altars to worship God. But specifically with the people of of Israel, they had these incredible encounters with God, with Yahweh communicating to them upon the mountaintops. You'd be familiar with mountains like Mount Oreb or Mount Sinai, which really were synonymous with each other. This is where Moses went away to to meet with God by himself as Israel encamped at the base of this mountain. And there he received the law from God and, and was able to experience the glory of God. There on that mountain. The same mountain is where Elijah experienced the glory of God passing by him in the, in the faint whisper of his glory. You'll remember Mount Carmel, where there Elijah uh, wanted to prove and, and proclaim the glory of God to the prophets of Baal. And so there on that mountain, he proclaimed by, by showing the power of God, not in himself, but showing the power of God on display by praying and beseeching God to show his glory to these false prophets. And God did it. Of course, we're familiar with the term Mount Zion, which is actually a a, a hill or a, a mount in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. But the term actually became synonymous for Jerusalem as a whole. And it, and it actually became synonymous for the place where God dwells. As in the holy city, Mount Zion, and even looking to the future in an eschatological sense where God would, would live and dwell in the new Zion. And all that is flowing from this idea of this mount in Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives, 
which is on the eastern side of Jerusalem where God was worshipped in 1 Samuel chapter 15 as David goes there and proclaims as he's running from Absalom, his son, and he says, this is where God is worshipped. Mount, Mount of Olives is where Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God resting upon this mountain. And of course, it's the Mount of Olives where Jesus spends much of his time during the Passion Week before his crucifixion, praying, resting, teaching, even being arrested and going to be crucified. And so we should not be surprised that Jesus chooses a mountain to go and be away from other people, to get away from the crowds and to pray. Now, we don't need a mountain to meet with God. But the mountain symbolized a sense of solitude, a sense of majesty where we would see the, 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 the greatness of God. But Jesus is simply teaching us here, what, whatever mountain he was on, he was teaching that in, when we go to be with the Father, to pray with the Father, we should do so with solitude. It's not the secret formula to prayer, but it gets us away from the distractions of everyday life. If you're like me as a parent of many children, maybe not five, with the busyness of this world, solitude is very necessary for prayer. And Jesus is demonstrating this to us. All throughout his ministry, Jesus steps away and makes, uh, uh, finds a place of isolation to be alone and commune with the Father. Now we could spend a whole sermon on the beauty and the mystery of the Son communing with the Father by the Spirit and yet still being God as one God. There's beauty there. There's mystery there. And yet even in the Trinitarian way that the Son is communicating by prayer and the Father is the same way that we pray. Because we pray through a Trinitarian means. We pray by the Spirit because the Bible says, right, that we cannot pray without the Spirit. We don't know what to say without the Spirit. So we pray to the Father through the Lord Jesus. It was through the Lord Jesus that we can access our Creator, our God. And we pray to the Father through the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. That's how prayer works. And it's not necessarily something we uh, can experience or, or, or completely understand. I, we don't we don't necessarily go into prayer and go, okay, I'm now engaging the Father through the, the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Okay, here I go. No, instead, there's just an intimacy there that we know that we can approach the Father. We can approach Him, not fearing the wrath of God against our sin, but instead knowing that Christ has paved the way for us to approach the throne of grace by the, the, the mercy and the work of Christ. And so if anything, I think what we can see from this beginning here is that Jesus is teaching us simply to take time to get alone as we pray. To just get alone. Doesn't mean that that's the only time we pray. To say that we cannot pray in the midst of day-to-day -day life is to be confused with the idea that Jesus uh, or the, 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 the New Testament writers command us to pray without ceasing. And oftentimes in our day, we can't necessarily get away to pray, but we can still pray. We can pray as we're driving. We can pray at our desk, at work. We can pray in the midst of a, a tantrum as our child is, is flailing themselves on the ground like a wild beast. And we just have to stop and pray. And there's no solitude there, right? <laughs> but let us make it a habit as, as people wanting to commune with our Creator that we get alone to pray. 
You know, the times that I've enjoyed hiking up tall mountains, the, one of the beauties of that is that you never run into people usually. Very rarely you're like, oh, there's a whole crowd of people up here. The solitude is beautiful. You get up there, it's quiet. You can see all the things that God has made. And you want to meet with God. I would encourage you in your own life to, to take moments and in, 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 in times in your life where you, you plan and you, you purpose to get away and commune with God. Maybe even extended periods where you just commune and fast and, 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 and remove yourself from the distractions. Hit the little airplane mode on your phone. Plan with your wife and your children that, that you're going to go away and, and, and sit on a lake in a boat and just pray. Sit by a tree and just read God's word and meditate on the things of God. Church, if we don't plan on doing those things, the busyness and the noise and the distraction of this world will overcome us. We will sell out on solitude because we think that we just have to live in that world and we don't. We can still get away and enjoy the solitude of communing with our Father, praying to Him. Jesus demonstrates prayer throughout his ministry for us. He prays at his baptism. He prays before choosing his disciples. He prays at his transfiguration when he reveals the glory of God. He prays at the conclusion of his ministry. He prays at his arrest. He prays at his crucifixion. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us to pray about God's kingdom about God's provision. He teaches us to pray for our enemies. He teaches us to pray for forgiveness, for for protection, and for His glory and His kingdom. And so as the church, we are challenged this morning to remember that even as Jesus sends away His disciples, picture for a moment that they are traveling on a boat, the storm is upon them, and even Jesus is there on the mountain interceding for them, praying, being ready to show his glory on the face of those waters to his disciples, to reveal his deity once again. And so as a church, we should continue to pray. As Paul instructs the Colossians that we should pray in the Spirit, That we should pray without ceasing. That there should be order to our prayer. And men, as Paul instructs Timothy, that we should be ones who lead in prayer. And lastly, as the church, wherever there's sick people, wherever there's suffering, wherever there's joy in life, we should always bring people together and pray for those people, for the sick, for the suffering, for those full of joy. Let us be people who pray consistently, communing with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, So Jesus sends these disciples away because he wants to be alone. He wants to commune with the Father. But John chapter 6 tells us that he also wants these disciples to leave because the people have begun to gather around them and they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. John chapter 6 verse 15 is kind of the conclusion to the feeding of the 5,000. And John says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus wanted to avoid this coronation ceremony that these zealous Jews were trying to inflict upon him. Why? Well, because the Jews wanted to see a a political leader rise up in Jesus. 
They wanted Jesus to be this political, zealous leader who would take the, the Roman um, uh, government by storm. That, 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 that he would rise up Jews and he would almost form like an army and that they would just take over the Romans. That he would remove the oppression. And Jesus knew that the spiritual war that he was fighting was why he came to this earth. It wasn't a political war. It was not a social war. It was spiritual war. And so instead of allowing these zealous Jews to make him king for the sake of political means, Jesus withdrew to avoid this coronation. He sent his disciples away. It's the same kind of idea when we see in Matthew chapter 21. As the people lined up as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem on the donkey, many of these people are waving palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, they're thinking that Jesus is going to be this political restorer and political uh, deliverer of their oppression. Not the one who would die on the cross for their sins. Not the one who would reconcile them back to God. And so he sends them away, not only to be alone with the Father in isolation, but he wants to avoid coronation. And lastly, he sends them away because he wants to display his dominion. See, in that moment... Jesus sends these disciples away because as we talked about on Wednesday night and and alluded to on on Sunday, Mark chapter 6 tells us that even after the the feeding of the 5,000, Mark chapter 6 verse 52 tells us that the disciples did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. They, They walked away after passing out Baskets and baskets of food, of bread and of fish fragments that they clearly saw multiplied from five loaves and two fish. Literally, Jesus put them together in in groups of fifties and hundreds. So they're literally passing out, passing out, passing out, passing out. What in the world's happening? We're just keep passing it out. And they walk away from that and they cannot understand the miracle that's just happened. They can't understand it. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. And so once again, we see this Jesus sending them out. There, they're in the midst of this storm. And once again, Jesus is going to show and display his dominion to them. He is going to help them understand And we talked about this a lot Wednesday night, and that is just how easy it is for us to to look at the disciples and go, what is their problem? And we're the very same way. How we so easily fall into disbelief and unbelief in the power of our Savior when He has clearly shown us over and over again that nothing is impossible with God. Matter of fact, turn to, to Mark chapter 8. Just hold your place there. So Mark chapter 6 is where Jesus has, has healed, or um, excuse me, has fed the 5,000. He's going to walk on the water and, and prove his deity. Mark does not include Peter walking out on the water, but they still see the miracle of Jesus walking to them on the water. And in verse 8, he feeds 4,000 again. Look in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is after he feeds a 4,000 group of people. He says, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. 
He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? In other words, he's saying, guys, I have performed these miracles and I have revealed my glory and I've shown you my power and yet you do not understand. And so over and over again for the disciples, just like for us as believers, we have to be reminded from the continual reading and understanding and the meditating of God's power and his dominion and his sovereignty that he rules all things. That he can do the impossible in every scenario if it's according to his will. Anything. There is nothing that God cannot overcome in your life if it is according to his good purposes. Now, his will may not be to overcome that situation in your life at this point. At this, it, it, that very situation you're going through God may want you to go through that so that you can learn through suffering. But in a, in a momentary thought, it could be gone by his power. In a momentary thought. And, and so Jesus sends these men out to the boat because once again, he is going to show his dominion to them on the face of these waters in the Sea of Galilee. There he is going to show them the peace that he brings, the peace that can only be found in him. Verse 24 of Matthew 14. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The scenario is, is that they have been rowing throughout the night. The fourth watch of the night was a, a, a way to, to measure Roman time or, or time in the Roman world. And so that would have been from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Okay? Where most people are sleeping, these disciples are rowing th- across the Sea of Galilee. And science tells us in that region that it's very easy for, for uh, air to flow down into that region and cold air mixing with warm air and violent raging seas constantly on the Sea of Galilee. These are, these are experienced fishermen. Many of these men, been there, done that, not a big deal. But it appears that these are supernatural storms. The wording that Mark uses, or excuse me, that Matthew uses, the storm was tormenting these disciples. Tormenting. Same word that would be used for a demon tormenting a person's body. Back when we looked at Jesus uh, sleeping in the boat and waking up and saying, peace be still, the, the, the words for those storms were like hurricanes. Like literally tornadoes on the water. And so they were afraid. But it was the, the terror came. The fear ultimately came in verse 26 when they see a person walking on the water. They immediately go to the supernatural and they say, it is a ghost. It's a ghost. The logically, they're, they're in the right mind to think this is not possible by human standards. This is beyond nature. This has to be something supernatural. It must be a ghost. You know what they didn't say? It must be Jesus. Jesus. 
Because he's the only one that I know that can do something this amazing and this supernatural. No, instead they say, it's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Those are two commands sandwiched between a very important theological truth. So I want you to think of it this way. Be brave. Do not fear. I am. In the Greek, it is I is the phrase ego I me, which means I am. John uses it throughout his gospel to refer to Jesus' statements when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. It is not just a statement of self-declaration, although I think Jesus is doing that. It's a theological statement. Jesus is first saying, hey guys, it's Jesus. It's not just anybody on the water, in case you were confused. Thought maybe, you know, somebody from in town came and just started walking on the water. It's Jesus. Definitely a self-declaration. But beyond or underneath that declaration is a theological identification as Yahweh, as the one true God. And this is so very important for us because as believers, as Christians, we must understand that our theology establishes our orthodoxy. What that means is what we believe about God must lead to how we practice the Christian life. How we live. We don't live and then adjust our living to our theology. Our theology leads out in our orthodoxy. And so the the statement, do not be afraid, be courageous, those commands are not be courageous, find courage, encourage itself. It does not say, he doesn't say brothers, find courage in one another. He doesn't say, you are Jews, find courage in your nationalism. He says, find courage in me. Your theology must establish your orthodoxy. Moses says the very same thing in Exodus 14. He says to the, to the, the people of Israel, fear not, Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Why should you not fear? Why should you stand firm? Because of the Lord. Your theology guides your orthodoxy. He tells the same thing to Jairus. You remember Jairus was this religious or this uh, political leader? His son was, or his daughter was about to die. He comes to Jesus. He seeks Jesus out. Jesus goes with them. They're, they're traveling to the house where his daughter is sick and on her deathbed. And there is, he's interrupted by a woman who, who for 12 years had a a condition, a, a health condition that was killing her. And this interruption causes a delay in Jesus getting to this woman and the child or this little girl and the girl dies. And so people from Jairus' house come and find him and they're like, forget it, she's dead already. Don't waste Jesus' time. And Jesus looks to Jairus and he says, in two phrases, do not fear, only believe. Theology leads to your orthodoxy, Jairus. What you believe about me leads to the lack of fear, leads to the lack of anxiety, leads to the lack of of worry or, or doubt. Trust in what you believe in me. And how can we believe and have a proper theology if we don't dive and swim and live in God's word? That's how he's revealed himself to us. 
Ed Welch writes an incredible book on fear and anxiety. He says the odd thing about fear and anxiety is that they are running away from something, but they don't know what to run to. Our fear and anxiety, they know danger, but they don't know where to find peace and rest. He goes on later to say that there are no choices that we have other than putting our trust in God. Other people can't quite be trusted, and we are not in control. That limits the field to God himself. No gods, little g, only God, big G. A pantheon of gods will not do because none of them have jurisdiction over your particular dilemma. The greatest possibility for rest and comfort lies in the knowledge of the true God. And who can resist the one whose self-given name is mighty God, everlasting Father, Deliverer, Lord of hosts, Rock of ages, Faithful One, and Good Shepherd? And so our eternal peace and rest comes through a knowledge of who God is, how he has revealed himself, so that we may find peace and we may find rest in Jesus Christ, who is the proclaimed Prince of Peace. The one who reconciles us back to God. So we no longer have to fear So that we can once again, as Adam and Eve were created, have an identity and a fellowship with God. After sin entered the world, Adam and Eve and every human being after them are on a quest to find identity in something. Am I a good businessman? Am I a good parent? Am I a good baseball player? Am I a good cheerleader? Am I a good boyfriend? Am I a good wife? And if I'm doing all these things well, then I find value and I found worth in those things until those things crumble and those things are stripped away and their identity is lost. Adam and Eve had their identity in the garden when they fellowshiped with the Creator. So we must be reconciled back to the Father through Jesus Christ. And in that we find our greatest eternal peace. An eternal peace with God shapes circumstantial peace in this world. Whatever peace you're looking for, you cannot find it if you first do not have peace with God through Jesus. This week on Twitter, I found a very pertinent and powerful statement made by a lady, Miss Pryor. She said, Christian, take the issue of the day weighing most heavily on you. First, weigh it against the past 6,000 years, then against eternity. And in light of that, our momentary afflictions, we find our peace with God. Lastly, Jesus teaches on faith. He teaches us about prayer. He he teaches us about finding rest and peace in him. Lastly, he's going to teach us about faith. Verse 28 says that Peter is on the boat. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, or, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I really struggled with this because I remember being taught that Peter is the hero of this passage. Peter is the hero. 
you wouldn't get out of that boat. You would not get out of that boat in the midst of the storm and walk to Jesus. You wouldn't do it. So have faith like Peter. I think that is a... That's a very honorable passage or message to hear. But I want you to be aware of the very first things that Peter says to Jesus. He says, Lord... If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I wish that Jesus, in a mode of being kind of like the, the parent over the children, I wish that Jesus would have said to Peter, Peter, don't make me repeat myself. I already told you who I was. And you are asking me, Lord, if this is you, command me to come to the wa- onto the water. Peter still doubts that this is Jesus. Regardless of the evidence that no other person can possibly walk on the water and come out to a boat in the middle of a torrential storm. And Peter says, Lord, if it's possibly you on the water here, then I will be bold and brave and step out onto the water. Makes more sense that Peter would have just gotten out of the boat if he truly was the brave man of faith that he thought that he was. See, I I think and agree with not all theologians on this, but many, that Jesus tells Peter to come out on the water to humor Peter in his arrogance. Okay, you think you're a man of faith? Step on out of the boat, man. Come on out and step out on the boat and let's see and learn a great lesson about faith. So Peter does. He steps out of the boat and in an act of folly, he starts to walk and begins to fear and he begins to sink. Now, Jesus was not going to let Peter be destroyed, but instead he reaches down and he saves Peter and he teaches all a great lesson about faith. That faith is rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ. In his authority. Meaning, we obey because who is speaking to us? The king of kings. That's what we do. And we as human beings rationalize and we think too much. We don't act immediately. John Calvin says that in many cases, God promotes our interests better by refusing our requests. But at times, he yields to us that by experience, we may be more fully convinced of our own folly. In this manner, it happens every day that by granting to those who believe in him more than is actually needed, he trains them to modesty and sober-mindedness to the future. Sometimes it's sobering to think that God may actually give us what we ask for just to show us how foolish of a request it was. Because he is always teaching us He is always guiding us. And so our faith must be rooted in his authority and according to his word. And we must believe him when he says, it is I, I am. There is no reason to doubt. There is no reason to fear. I know he's done that many times. In my life, as a believer, as a pastor, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be people who are willing to risk for the sake of the gospel. We understand that there is great risk in ministering and serving the Lord Jesus. But there are times that... that We are asking for things that have nothing to do with the glory of God and His kingdom. 
we make it to be that way, but it's really not. And at times, God will give us exactly what we ask us to show us the foolishness of what we ask for. Or to show our human weakness and our need for obedient faith in him. So faith is rooted in the authority of the Lord Jesus. And our faith must be fixed consistently on him. You know, when I was a young man, my dad was gracious enough to allow me to do electrical work with him. And, uh, you know, like most young men, I had something to prove. So I would go with him, and he would teach me how to do a certain task, and, and, and I'd be like, okay, Dad, I got it, I got it. And he'd be like, no, let me, I mean, this electricity, son, this is 220 volts. Like, you know, let me teach you exactly what you, no, I got it, Dad. He's like, okay, you got it. Go at it. And it was in those moments of I got it type arrogance that I learned great lessons, valuable lessons, what to touch and what to not touch in an electrical panel. But I was trying in my pride to prove my worth and my value. I was trying to accomplish something that I had little understanding about. And I think Peter learns a a similar lesson as he's walking out to Jesus that as Jesus is teaching him about his arrogance stepping out of the boat, he kind of is living in this, I got this moment. I got this, Jesus. Here I come. And, and we, we must not be confused. Every step that, that Peter takes is by the grace of God. Every step out of the boat is Jesus forming under him a solid foundation to walk on. So it's by no means Peter's lack of faith that causes him to sink as if his faith meter is keeping him up above the water. But as Jesus senses his lack of faith, he begins to allow Peter to sink, to teach him that he is there. I got this, Peter says, when Jesus is saying, no, I got you. I got you. Christian, It will be to our spiritual destruction if we live in such a way will we ever utter with our minds and our hearts to our sovereign king, I got this. I got this sickness. I got this situation. I got this thing of suffering. I got this parenting thing down. I got this job. I got this missionary work. I got it. I'm good. It will be to our destruction. We must trust and fix ourselves abiding in Jesus Christ continually and consistently for as long as we live on this earth. Church, we must fight human pride, human dignity, self-worth, And find our dignity and our value and our worth and being attached as an appendage to the Lord Jesus. That's why the Bible says consistently in a very simple and sometimes ignored phrase, in him or in Christ. What you have is because you are in him, not in yourself. And we praise Jesus for the compassion that he shows as Peter falls and he reaches by his grace and mercy. Even in our foolish living, Jesus is constantly showing us mercy and grace, drawing us back to where he wants us to be, continually extending himself to us when we're unworthy of it. And so we see Jesus reunited in the boat with these disciples. And what do they do? They fall down and they worship Jesus. They say, truly, you are the Son of God. So here's your second lesson on ology this morning. 
We've learned our theology leads our orthodoxy. Our theology also leads our doxology. We don't worship for the sake of worship. We worship for what we know and understand about God. That he is worthy of our worship. Jesus demonstrated that he was God by walking on the water, by rescuing Peter, by giving the strength and the power for Peter to walk on the water. He fed the 5,000. He's raised people from the dead. And this is the first time the disciples fall down and worship him. The first time. The next time they will fall down and worship Jesus is in Matthew 28, when he is risen from the dead. And greeting them and meeting them in verse 9 of Matthew 28, he says, greetings, and they come up and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. Why? Because their theology is, he is the Messiah, risen from the dead. Nothing can stop our king. 28, 16, and 17, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. We worship Sunday to Sunday and throughout the week because our minds are blown by the majesty of God by his grace, by his mercy. Not because we want some experience where we walk away with tinglies and goosies all over and we're like, that was the best worship service. Really, what did you learn? Man, it was, I had goosies all over. That, that music was incredible and the people were loving on me, but what did you learn about Jesus? What did you learn about yourself? And about eternal-minded things. What did you learn? I'm, yeah. Folks, our theology leads us to a proper doxology or worship of the one true king, the Lord Jesus. May his word fuel us to practice what he preaches and may his truth Guide us to worship him as he reveals himself. And in him, we find our peace.